funding for NJ Spotlight News provided by the members of the New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child, and RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, the big game is right around the corner, but history is already being made with nearly 68 million people projected to place bets. It's not an exaggeration to say this is going to be the biggest Super Bowl ever for, for in terms of betting. Also, NJ decides 2024, Sue Altman is now the presumptive Democratic nominee in the 7th Congressional District. Now she's seeking to unseat Republican Tom Kane Jr. In a purple district, we need all hands on deck. And so I'm happy to work with the county organizations to fight back and win the seat back from Tom Kane Jr. Plus, combating learning loss. Lawmakers introduce new legislation to address student performance gaps that began during the COVID-19 pandemic. What we've been doing hasn't been working. Let's get away from the, the cycle of insanity of doing the things the same way with the same outcomes. And ahead of the 2026 World Cup final, New Jersey gets to work preparing for the international spectacle, which is estimated to generate $2 billion, but comes at a cost. This is costing tens of millions of dollars already, and there is not a legal agreement with New York at this point to uh, confirm that they are going to pay back. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Friday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. Whether you're into football or not, this weekend's Super Bowl has the potential to be the most watched in the game's history. According to a Seton Hall University sports poll, nearly three quarters of those surveyed said they plan to tune in for the big game. That number has grown every year since 2021, according to the poll, and it could be in part because of interest in sports betting. Industry analysts are predicting records setting gambling on the game. 68 million Americans will likely place bets. New Jersey residents' access to online sports betting is a big part of that estimate. So too is the Taylor Swift effect. As senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, anticipation is building for just how much economic activity the game will bring. Players gonna play, 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 and betters gonna bet, bet, bet this weekend as America anties up for Super Bowl 58. Whether they wager on who wins the game, it's the Chiefs versus the 49ers, or on whether Taylor gets engaged to Travis, some 68 million American adults will put their money down. It's not an exaggeration to say this is going to be the biggest Super Bowl ever for, for in terms of betting. Sports betting guru Jeff Sakodny expects fans to wage more than a billion bucks just in legal bets, toss in illegal bookies and online overseas action, and bets on Super Bowl 58 could top $23 billion, up from $16 billion last year, according to the American Gaming Association. What's driving the surge? 
accessibility. Sports betting in general has been increasing as more states legalize the practice. In 2023 alone, six new states came on board. Jersey legalized online sports betting in 2018. It's now permitted in 38 states plus Washington, D.C. With Super Bowl 58 located in Las Vegas, experts forecast nearly 13 percent of legal bets will come from Nevada, followed by New York with about 12 percent, New Jersey with almost 10 percent and Pennsylvania with 7 percent, the rest divided amongst other states. Atlantic City's nine casinos have a weekend-long party planned. I can already see it today. Today's Friday and we're, we're already very busy and building a lot of momentum for what's happening here at resorts in our DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, it's going to be really exciting and throughout our whole property. He predicts a 10 to 15 percent bump in wagers. And with apps, folks can place bets on their phone while sitting at home on the sofa. Again, accessibility. It's almost like a 90 percent to 10 percent split in favor of online sports betting. It's just it, it really does increase the overall handle because it makes it so much easier to place a bet. So it is a huge contributing factor to the overall growth of sports betting in the U.S., that technology side of things. Most odds makers currently favor the Niners. Meanwhile, pop star Taylor Swift's romance with Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey has spawned a sideline of prop bets, but they won't be official sports wagers. It is illegal to wager on outcomes that are not related to the game directly. So you can't place a bet on whether Taylor Swift is going to um, you know, eat a hot dog or how many times she's going to be on camera. But I would bet that people in their Super Bowl parties are going to have different pools about what's going to happen with Taylor Swift. The main thing is to bet responsibly and to, to know what your limits are. And expect to lose whatever you bet. Expect to lose. If you win, it's a surprise. Felicia Grandin says after the Super Bowl, calls for help always spike at her group's hotline, 1-800-GAMBLER. They're mostly young men aged 18 to 24, she says. Since the onset of, of Sportsbook in 2018, calls to our helpline have increased by 189%. So it is a growing problem. She advises have fun, but set a limit on how much you can afford to lose on the score or on Taylor and Travis. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. Former TV news reporter Alex Zidane is officially jumping into the race for U.S. Senate, joining two other Republicans and a large field of candidates looking to take the seat currently held by indicted Democratic Senator Bob Menendez. In a campaign video released online today, Zidane is seen at the U.S.-Mexico border in Nahalas, Arizona, calling for an end to illegal border crossings. The launch video also shows footage of the conservative Republican during his stint as a reporter for News 12. Zidane now joins Mendham Borough Mayor Christine Serrano-Glasner and South Jersey businessman Curtis Bashaw in the GOP primary. Republican, of course, though, hasn't been elected to the U.S. Senate in New Jersey since 1972. Meanwhile, first-term Republican Congressman Tom Kane is working to hold on to his seat. He's facing a challenge from progressive activist Sue Altman, who this week became the presumptive Democratic nominee after the only other remaining candidate dropped out of the race. And she joins me now. Sue, Hi. welcome to the show. Thank it's really so good to see you. So obviously you've had a long career of activism in New Jersey, most recently as the state director for the Working Party's family. How do you carve a path for yourself 
in a moderate district like this? Oh, I think it's very easy. Most of the work we did at New Jersey Working Families Alliance was um, against the corruption in New Jersey, which now, unfortunately, is pretty well documented. Um, You're and referencing the tax incentive breaks well, that you fought Well, take your pick. <laughs> I'm referencing the tax incentive policies we fought against, and I'm, I'm referencing what we know happened with Senator Menendez and what he's under indictment for. So unfortunately, New Jersey corruption is having a moment in the sun right now. Um, and that's a good thing for all of us as New Jerseyans. So my work at Working Families was predominantly pro-democracy and anti-corruption work. And I think that's a message that will resonate across party lines this November. But you have to admit this is a district that now leans favorable toward Republican voters. Um, and not all are in line with some of the more left area uh, views of your policies. Well, I would challenge you to sort of name what those are. Like from my point of view, what I did at New Jersey Working Families is worked very, very hard for workers, for the environment, for women's rights, for uh, reproductive choice. And these are all things that I think most people in this district believe in. Um, people care about the environment in this district. People care about workers and affordability. I mean, things are too expensive right now. Everybody knows it. Um, and they're really afraid about extremism and the type of sort of Trump-led Republican Party that we're seeing Tom Kane enable constantly. So from my standpoint, the things I've worked for, I'm proud of. There's a convention coming up in Hunterdon County. I believe it's February 25th. Are you pursuing the organization line? I can't the wait for the Hunterdon District? County Convention. Hunterdon County is where I'm from. I have deep roots in this district. I grew up in Clinton and went to Voorhees High School. Um, so I am delighted. The Hunterdon County Democrats have been wonderful. They are fighters. They are committed to the cause. So you will pursue the organization Oh, line. yeah. The, 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 there is no primary now. I'm the, I'm the last candidate standing, which is great. Um, but the Hunterdon County Democrats and the Warren County Democrats and all the county organizations in New Jersey's 7th are part of the coalition we need to win. We've gotten labor endorsements. We've gotten statewide advocacy groups endorsing us. We've gotten, I think, 18 or 20 local leaders who endorsed us. And of course, the local county organizations, including and especially Hunterdon, which is first, are part of the coalition we need to win. How do you reckon that with you're involved with a, a lawsuit that's in federal court to uh, abolish the, the county line? How do you reckon then pursuing that support when it's something that you've called in the past, you know, truly indefensible? My position on that is well documented. Um, it is a system that is antiquated. Um, it's a system that has deserved the scrutiny that I think this U.S. Senate primary is giving it. Um, but I'm the last candidate standing. And in a purple district, we need all hands on deck. And so I'm happy to work with the county organizations to fight back and win the seat back from Tom Kane Jr. So the lawsuit's on its way. It's happening. Um, my candidacy won't affect that at all. There have been increasing calls uh, for folks to join on with a ceasefire resolution in the House. Bonnie Watson Coleman, Donald Payne Jr., they have uh, signed on to that. They have urged for a ceasefire. Where do you stand? You're talking about the Middle East now, for Israel. The Middle East. Yeah, it's, it's an awful tragedy. The situation in the Middle East just breaks my heart. What happened on October 7th was a terrorist attack. Hamas is a terrorist organization. I, is heartbreaking to think that they use sexual violence against Israeli women um, as part of a mediated, pre-mediated, premeditated attack on Israel, and it was awful and heartbreaking. And what's happening in Gaza is awful and heartbreaking. And I think of the women there who have no political power, and that just makes my heart break. So so far, I have not called for called for a ceasefire. I think the situation is very complex over there, and I don't think it's so simple um, that a ceasefire will stop the violence. I think this is a deep-seated problem. I believe we need to pursue peace. I am I'm hopeful and confident in the current administration and its handling of this crisis, and I think underscores why we need to reelect Biden in the fall. 
Sue Altman is the presumptive Democratic nominee for the race in District 7. Sue, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The war in Gaza is sparking a level of youth activism not seen in years. Across the state today, students from a number of high schools and colleges are taking part in what's been dubbed the New Jersey Students' Day of Action to support Palestinians and amplify demands for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Students marched around 3 p.m. today from their schools or campuses to designated locations, including city halls, parks, and even Starbucks, which has faced a boycott due to the company's stance on the Middle East conflict. It's just the latest in a string of movements by activists. In New Brunswick on Thursday, community members from dozens of organizations across New Jersey gathered at the city's Monument Square to mourn the thousands of Palestinians who've been killed in the Gaza war and called on Congressman Frank Pallone, who represents the area, to co-sponsor the House ceasefire resolution, which demands an immediate and permanent ceasefire. So far, Democratic lawmakers Bonnie Watson Coleman and Donald Payne Jr. are the only House members from New Jersey to sign on. Well, we've reported on the extensive learning loss brought about by the pandemic and remote learning. Now a top lawmaker in Trenton wants to work with teachers to reverse its impact. Senate Majority Leader Teresa Ruiz this week introduced a bill package aimed at improving literacy rates and closing achievement gaps, especially at early ages. But some educators aren't on board. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports. What we've been doing hasn't been working. Senate Majority Leader Teresa Ruiz introduced a package of bills this week aimed at improving education and closing the massive learning gaps that have worsened in the state since the pandemic. It has broad support from education organizations like Jersey Can. There are four bills, and one of these bills addresses universal screeners. So the universal screener says, let's make sure that we know what every, you know, where every single student is starting off, you know, in those earlier grades. Furthermore, let's make sure that there's oversight of this effort at large. And so one of the bills addresses that. And let's think about intervention, uh, you know, programs in school. So one of the bills addresses that. The devil's always in the details. And Jersey Can's Paula White says this package as a whole addresses more of the nitty gritty details of education gaps than anything previously introduced, focusing on details like like making phonics-based education uniform across the state. This bill package certainly gets to what it is that we have been concerned about in terms of literacy, and frankly, uh, you know, kind of even goes beyond what we had hoped for. A bill within this package would create a learning loss czar, a position that Ruiz says is needed to help analyze where each district stands in terms of grade level achievement. That individual would work closely with the commissioner of the Department of Education and would strategize new ways to meet goals, things like professional development, um, elevating teacher coaches and literacy, funding their efforts, maybe creating some kind of a certificate program that promotes them and gives them a bonus in that space. Last year, Governor Murphy announced a tutoring program for all third graders, but that's had a slow and bumpy start, proving just how difficult it can be to get close to 600 school districts all moving in the same direction. There has to be this level of urgency from the state and the department to one, implement the regs or the rules, to sign bills if in fact there, there are things that need to get signed. 
and then to work collectively to be sure that districts are meeting the expectations. That's one thing that I've always asked the Department of Education to really be the, instead of a beacon of bureaucracy, a beacon of policy. The NJEA, the state's largest teachers union, shared some concerns about some of these initiatives, saying they believe this legislation is well-intentioned. However, it does not seem to recognize much of what is already going on in classrooms across New Jersey. We also have some concerns that it'll impose a one-size-fits-all approach that does not meet the unique needs and challenges of every different classroom. They also think the state needs to focus on addressing the teacher shortage before mandating more programs and professional development. But as for how much money this package of bills will cost, Senator Ruiz says... I don't have a dollar amount, but quite frankly, we I, I don't want to look at this as an expenditure. The more we make investments in these, the less headlines you'll have of, of negative outcomes plaguing a community. I don't understand why there has been this um, unwillingness to recognize that those two things are in tandem. The senator has also formed a working group of dozens of education organizations that'll meet for the first time next week. In Newark, I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. It's a first of its kind for the U.S. and our state, a regional environmental review of offshore wind energy development for multiple projects in waters off the Jersey coastline. The areas are being evaluated as a group because they're so close to one another, and the government is hoping to speed up the process to get the projects going after the offshore wind industry hit a lot of economic turbulence, causing delays and cancellations. Ted Goldberg reports. People packed into a Tom's River hotel to hear about offshore wind from the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, or BOEM, and have BOEM hear from them. If there's anything that we're missing, if there's any additional data that we should be considering, if there are any additional mitigation measures that we could be considering. BOEM is about eight months from releasing an environmental impact statement regarding these six offshore wind projects in what's known as the New York Bight. Bohm says these sites could create enough energy to power more than 2 million homes. As you might imagine, the busiest part of this open house was the comment station. We get a lot of interest from all variety of stakeholders and we want to hear from everyone. I wrote that we're destroying the ocean for a technology that's going to be obsolete in 10 years. Claire Morrison was one of many people to come and protest offshore wind. Despite explanations from Bohm, she's not convinced that these projects are safe to people and wildlife. And she's not alone. Go to these Facebook sites all over the world. That's the easiest thing in the world to do. You will hear what people are actually suffering from in these areas. Not to mention, of course, the sea life. You know, they're washing up. They thought, said you were going to kill the whales, the dolphins, and the marine mammals, and they didn't listen. They called us crazy. Well, guess what happened? Bohm admits that construction noises could hurt the fishing industry, but argues that not pursuing offshore wind will exacerbate climate change and hurt the ocean more. Fourth-generation fisherman Gus Lovgren doesn't see it that way. Now we're out there and we're seeing the absolute industrialization and destruction of our oceans. We're out there catching dead fish left and right. Environmental groups generally agree with Bohm and say that pursuing offshore wind energy would be a boon for New Jersey. For health, economy, jobs, um, and just making New Jersey a leader in the country for a new industry. And one of the things that we wanna, we're want to we focusing on is making sure that there's fact-based um, scientific information about you know what offshore wind means. A Monmouth poll from last summer showed most people in New Jersey support offshore wind energy. 
but it's gone from a wide consensus to a smaller majority over the last year. James Thompson with the League of Conservation Voters says the issue is people not being informed or being misinformed. The fossil fuel industry um, has been leading the way in providing disinformation um, and, you know, bas basically just lying to people about the facts. The Republicans ran an anti-clean energy, anti-electrification campaign that did not work um, because in reality, New Jerseyans do respond to clean energy. So I think it was more of a political uh, situation that we were experiencing last year. While most green groups back these plants for offshore wind, Clean Ocean Action does not. So this is a map of the current plans just for the Northeast region in our New York, New Jersey shore. Executive Director Wendy Ziff says the current proposal calls for too many wind farms and that BOEM should start on a smaller scale. What these are is, is a massive jungle, really, of concrete and steel. Um, now, you know, we're not opposed to the idea of wind, but at this scale and at this speed and with this scope and magnitude, you know, it's just too much too fast. If you want BOEM to hear what you think, they're taking public comments until February 26th. In Tom's River, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. In our Spotlight on Business report, the state is already getting to work on preparations for the 2026 World Cup final, and there's plenty to do. Millions are expected to descend on the region to catch the game. Early estimates predict the event will generate about $2 billion in economic activity. But hosting also comes at a cost, and exactly how much is still unknown. New Jersey is technically splitting hosting duties with New York. Question is, how much of the tab will the other side of the river be picking up? Katie Sobko is a statehouse reporter for NorthJersey.com, The Bergen Record. I recently talked to her about her reporting on that very question. Katie, great to have you on. Obviously, a lot of the talk since the news that the World Cup final and, and a few games will be held here is the economic benefit, but you looked deeper into the costs. What do we know so far about what New Jersey's going to have to shell out? Well, we know that New Jersey has already shelled out a significant amount. NJSEA, the state's uh, Sports and Exposition Authority, which owns the, the Meadowlands Complex, has already been given $30 million from the state two years ago and has already spent upwards of $16 million of that to modify the stadium and to modify the grounds. They still have some left. Obviously, the, we're, we're weeks away from a budget address. Maybe there's more coming, but this is costing tens of millions of dollars already. And there is not a legal agreement with New York at this point to uh, confirm that they are going to pay back. So they said they would, so we'll, we'll see. But at this point, there's not quite yet any paperwork to say they have to. What has the governor's office said about that, that there's an understanding that New York is also hosting this, so there's an understanding that the cost will be split? Yeah, the governor is quick to point out the partnership. He he says that he has a great working relationship with New York City Mayor Eric Adams, and it probably is true. It's just a matter of there is not anything on paper yet to say they have to. And the governor is always also stressed that the partnership is just um, is not just on uh, financials, but in terms of security, police force, and services as well. So there are a lot of outside factors besides just the the actual money coming into the partnership and coming into what New York is supposed to provide as well. Are there any written plans about what the projected costs might be versus the projected revenue? Do we have anything on paper at this point? 
Not yet. I mean, the NJSEA has already set out a timetable and a cost for the things that they have hired people for. They have hired architects, they have hired designers, they've hired a firm to convert the field from turf to grass. So the underlying cost for those things that are already, you know, booked and paid for exists. But beyond that, what might happen or what is supposed to happen in the next, you know, almost 30 months is, is still to be seen. And with the way that inflation works and, and the uh, supply and demand, those costs might not be available for some time until the work gets done. And so what should we expect next then? Some type of breakdown, I'm guessing, in terms of what the projects are that they'll need to complete, what the costs are? Yeah, my understanding is that it's it's a work in progress. And there is a host committee that has been formed that um, is, is not necessarily a government entity that is responsible for things like fundraising and securing sponsors. The governor is um, adamant that private funding will, will pay for this. And if this host committee does secure that sponsorship and secure those donations, that that's likely where, what he's talking about, but it hasn't happened yet. It's, I assume that they had to get, find out what games they had before they could start approaching people about donating the money for it. Katie Sabko is the State House reporter for NorthJersey.com, The Record. Katie, thanks so much. Thank you. Turning to Wall Street, stocks traded in the green today as the S&P hit a historic milestone, trading above the 5,000 level this week, pointing to another record-setting session. Here's where the markets closed on this Friday. And tune in this weekend to NJ Business Beat with Raven Santana. She breaks down the big business of the big game, including how New Jersey bars and restaurants will cash in, the record number of gamblers expected to make bets, and the real value of investing millions in a big game ad. Watch it Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. on NJPBS. That's going to do it for us tonight, but make sure you tune in to Reporters Roundtable this weekend. David talks with Democratic Representative Bonnie Watson-Coleman about the gridlock in Washington. Then a panel of local reporters break down this week's political headlines. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10 on NJPBS. And on Chatbox, with the news of the World Cup coming to MetLife Stadium in 2026, David talks to New Jersey Chamber of Commerce President Tom Bracken about whether the Garden State will be ready for the global event. That's Saturday at 6.30 p.m. and Sunday morning at 10.30 right here on NJPBS. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the weather. We'll see you on Monday. NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years and by the PSCG Foundation.